podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors. Welcome to the Hedged Edge by RCM Ag Services, where we're getting out of the field and onto the mic to bring you weekly market updates, commentary from commodity experts, and monthly interviews with the biggest names in agribusiness. Welcome to the next edition of the Hedged Edge. I'm your host, Jeff Eisenberg, and today we're really excited about the opportunity to talk lumber. Uh, really, you know, we knew commodity markets were going to be exciting this year, heading into 21, but we didn't really know where and when it was going to fire up. Uh, turns out we have a bit of a dark horse looming in the commodity world, and that's, that's in lumber. Um, you know, at current prices, front month lumber futures have seen an increase of over 300% from this time last year, right in the middle of the pandemic, if you will. So the question is, you know, what's causing this spike in lumber prices? How are lumber traders handling this? And uh, what really are, what's in store for the next six, 12, 18 months as uh, lumber demand continues to, to rise? Uh, what's gonna happen to the existing stocks of lumber? What's gonna go on with home prices? So today we're, uh, we're honored actually, uh, we brought on the COO of Sherwood Lumber Company and industry veteran Kyle Little to join us from a 30,000 foot aerial view into uh, drill down into the individual forests, the lumber markets. So welcome Kyle, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks Jeff, uh, glad to be here. Thank you for the invite. Oh yeah, this is great. So uh, before we get jumping into lumber, you know, we've uh, chatted here ahead of time. You're, you're from Pittsburgh, I'm from Cleveland. Um, you know, we should probably have some sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, gridiron battle here. In yard. But, uh, um, you know, one thing that I just recently read, and this kind of brings true, I've been a Pittsburgh Penguins fan uh, from, from young time. Um, my dad grew up in New York City, and uh, his childhood friend moved to Pittsburgh and uh, uh, was a fan. So we would go over to games. And... Yarmir Yager, the guy was amazing. He had Mario Lemieux as, a, as, as his counterpart, or maybe some would consider it the opposite. Lemieux had, had, had Yager. But Yager, he's now playing still at age 49. He's a, a 33-year veteran. What, what do you remember from the, the, uh, the Penguins? Early? Oh, boy. I really – well, li I lived in Pittsburgh for over 20 years just recently – uh, moved uh, here to New York, uh, where our company's headquarters, and I I was a uh, Pittsburgh Penguins season ticket holder, so okay. know the teams very very well, uh, and enjoyed was really spoiled uh, uh, post um, uh, uh, Yarmil Yager and uh, uh, Mario Lemieux, and having Crosby and that that whole team come through and get to see multiple Stanley Cup playoffs, and yes. I'll tell you, there's nothing uh, better than going to a Stanley cup finals game like it is literally standing room only you never sit in your seats it's a absolute electric win or lose it's just an, an amazing feeling but um pittsburgh in general um just the way the town is is and uh diehard sports fans 
uh, having the opportunity to live there uh, has been uh, was unbelievable, and I, I miss it immensely. In fact, in fact, I know New York is a, always talked about the sports mecca of the of the country, but uh, I'll tell you the 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 opportunity you get with the people and the the Midwestern feel in Pittsburgh, uh, blue collar uh, mentality, and you know you live or die by the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, the Penguins, and even the Pirates, even though they've yeah. had some down you know many many down years, but uh, it die hard die hard Pirates fans. So uh, just a really really fun time and, and, and really um, amazing things. And I was blessed to have the opportunity to have my kids go to many Penguins games and yeah. are still Pittsburgh uh, diehard sports fans to this day. Now living in the, uh, the Jets and the Giants world or the Rangers <laughs> Islanders and the uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Devils world here on uh, Long Island. Right. And you live in Pittsburgh, you have one choice. Each That's sport. right. New York, you have to like, you know, pledge your allegiance to one group or the other. <laughs> Yep, That's, so, there's so no doubt about a, it. You grew up in a steel city, but you're in the lumber business. So give us a little bit of background. How, how did you find your way into lumber? And, um, you know, obviously you're you're out with uh, Sherwood in New York now. So maybe just give a give us a little bit of your background and then uh, kind of a description of the company, too. Maybe yeah, so, so like uh, probably not until uh, late 2020 did lumber become interesting to people, but Back in the day when I started in the business, roughly to, you know 20 plus years ago, um, I grew up in the lumber business. Uh, my family, uh, my great grandfather had an eastern uh, pine and hardwood uh, sawmill in uh, north uh, central Pennsylvania. Uh, went to college for finance, and I, you know, I, you know, the apple didn't fall so far from the tree, so to speak. And I got right back into the lumber business right out of college. Not back into the family business, as my father told me I needed to go do something else before <laughs> I came back there. But uh, um, had the opportunity to uh, get an internship at a lumber and building materials co-op, uh, a buying group, and uh, got my feet wet there. And then um, uh, was recruited by one of the largest uh, commodity brokerage houses uh, or conglomerates in North America called the Forest City Trading Group and really got my, you know, uh, feet wet there and understanding, you know, really what was happening uh, behind the scenes and how product was sourced at this, at the, uh, from the forest to the mill and, and, and rail and, and logistics and, and waterborne freight and how it got to the marketplace and then distributed it from there. So really understanding bulk purchases of lumber and breaking it down all over the country and, um, um, and, and, and then had the opportunity to move back home or closer to Pennsylvania. And uh, um, uh, the company that I was working for at the time got bought out by Sherwood Lumber and uh, have kind of worked myself up for, through the ranks uh, uh, since then. That was over 12 years ago. Uh, started out as a lumber trader, then became, you know, moved up the ranks and took on more responsibility. And our, our organization is a family owned and operated business, second okay. generation currently running it, third generation uh, uh, moving in. And, you know, my job was to really help second generation transition to the third generation. So for lack of better terms, getting ready for my new bosses, but, but partners really what it comes down to. We have a really, really good culture at Sherwood. Um, you really have an opportunity to do a lot of different things, a tremendous amount of autonomy. And, uh, you know, we've grown a lot since uh, the downturn in 2000. 2008 to where we are today in 2021, uh, we're going to do roughly a billion board feet uh, wow. through through our footprint this year. Um, How many train uh, cars is that? Through uh, 110,000 board feet, right? Per right, per right. So I guess that would be 100,000 rail cars, something like that. I mean, it's a lot. It's a, yeah. it's a lot, a lot. And and so uh, a built that billion 
um, uh, 73% of, of, of that uh, amount is something that we would physically touch in our distribution footprint. The other would be the drop ship direct shipments that you would do from the manufacturer to, to uh, the end user, but, you know, big volume. So, and people, it's ironic now that everybody's looking for lumber all over the place. So we get these odd emails back and forth. I'm building a shed in my backyard. Can you, you know, <laughs> supply me with lumber? And we're like, no, not, not really. Enough. You know, that's not, doesn't fit the co customer profile that we're looking for. <laughs> we're, we're selling, you know, big mass quantities to the largest uh, customers in North America. So, you know, we are, uh, uh, for lack of better terms, the primary secondary supplier of a lot of uh, forest products goods uh, to some of the biggest names that, that you see on the street every single day. Wow, that's a lot to unpack there, but uh, great, great overview. And uh, you know, if, if you don't mind, I, I kind of want to start back at the beginning there because for a lot of people, you know, they they think forestry, they think uh, you know, harvesting the wood, and then what happens after that? But first of all where is the wood mostly sourced? I mean, there's so many different kinds, right? You've got, uh, you know, the hardwoods, you've got southern yellow pines, you've got all these different types of wood, um, you know, for yourself in your early days, and then, uh, you know, where you guys sit here today, um, wh where are you sourcing the majority of the wood? Obviously, you're not harvesting it, but where is the majority of the wood actually harvested from? Maybe just help Demystify yeah. where where would come from? That would be great. Absolutely, yeah. So, well, I think one of the predicament, one of the largest pr uh, reasons why we're in this predicament today yeah. is because the world doesn't really understand the supply chain. It's because exactly. it's it's changing right now. So, when I first started in the business over 20 years ago, the majority of the wood brought into North America came from really one province of Canada, and that was British Columbia. Right, and uh, they produced they had the the mass volume of, of fiber coming into the United States at that time. And that was for a variety of different reasons. And then it continued to increase because they had a uh, infestation of an uh, uh, insect called the mountain pine beetle, which forced them to overcut because they had to, to take that fiber out of the forest. Otherwise it would just have disintegrated and become an unusable asset or a disintegrating asset. So they were forced to go out there and ramp up production. Um, it was great because we were building at that time somewhere between 1.6 to 2.1 million housing houses every year in the United States. Which so is, this was like the 20 years ago. Yeah, the market needed it in the early 2000s, so it wasn't such a big deal. It just consumed it. But over that time period, because they were forced to over harvest, they had to then. Uh, recognize that you can't just continue to harvest and harvest, harvest without having a, a regeneration and a replanting schedule that there was going to be a period in time when you're, that production of that region was going to be dramatically reduced. Not to and, mention the environmentalists are going to go bananas if you don't. Uh, absolutely. Something yeah. Replant. Right. Absolutely. And then here in North America, uh, the, the predominantly all the forests are all uh, um, FSC or SFI certified. They're very, very well uh, very much environmentally sound. And you talk about lumber, and I think that's the most common misnomer about lumber. Everybody thinks that, you know, because you cut down a tree, you're a bad person. The fact is uh, that the majority of sawmills 
uh, specifically in North America, all the sawmills in North America are probably one of the biggest, the, the biggest environmental supporters uh, in, in all of North America, very cognizant of wildlife, fish, uh, water, and, and, and so forth. So for every tree that they're cutting down, in, in most cases, they're planting four or five additional trees. That, right. So like, it's a really, really big thing. But going back to what I'm talking about, so where does the wood come from? Right. Early part of my career, predominantly British Columbia uh, and Eastern Canada and the Pacific Northwest. Right. Now, because of that, oh, that infestation of that beetle and, and now having to reduce, reduce annual uh, cuts, you're seeing a transition to the cheapest wood fiber basket, and that is the U.S. South. And so Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, the Carolinas, uh, these Arkansas, Texas, these states now encompass the largest wood basket, not just in North America, but the world. And it's the lowest cost fiber to go out there and harvest and produce. It's the lowest cost, but that doesn't necessarily mean the highest quality, though, right? So you're telling me we transition from higher quality to lower quality just as as an absolute need or... Well, that, that's correct. I mean, not every species is created equal. It doesn't right. have the same strength rating, doesn't have the same quality. Um, it um, doesn't have the same lifespan. Like some of it's not as, you know, um, quality conscious. So so Southern yellow pine historically was like the, um, the redheaded stepchild of the lumber world, right? Like right. nobody wanted it because it was hard and it was brittle. It was very hard to dry twists. And, there's, and what have you. But over time and technology has created this to be a, you know, now a much more usable and, uh, and user-friendly product. Also, you know, think about how we built houses 20, 30 years ago. It was all by swinging hammers. Today, everything's right. pneumatic guns. So the, the labor time on the job site is reduced now with using uh, you know, advanced technology and so, and so forth and production building, uh, whether it be trust manufacturing or uh, panelized plants has allowed southern yellow pine to be, take a little bit larger of a foothold. So, um, so, so now the marketplace is transitioning where we have less fiber out of the Pacific Northwest. We have right. less fiber out of BC. Um, Eastern Canada is starting to increase their production, but they only have so much that they can increase it. Right. Uh, the U.S. North is increasing, but again, only so much. The biggest increases in the world supply chain is going to come from the U.S. South, and that takes time. So um, you are, have seen some of the biggest conglomerates uh, in North America really put their stakes in the ground down there for, right. for the last 10 years, being you know, the Weyerhaeusers, uh, Georgia Pacifics, uh, West Frasers, Canfors, you know, Canadian-based Interfor, Canadian-based companies really know that, you know, they were very, very, very forward thinking, you know, 10, 15 years ago, knowing that their wood basket was going to decline, their future investment had to be where the, where the logs were, where the trees were. And that's what they did. The same thing could continue to happen, right? And we've seen this in in many other commodities. Speaking of the U.S. South, cotton started out in the U.S. South, now it's in West Texas. And you know, corn corn production has moved further and further north as as uh, you know uh, uh, global warming has kind of taken hold. So, um, are you seeing some transitions now where things might be going to in the next say 20, 20 years? Is it? Is yeah, it kind of, very yeah. much so. I guess so. So we All always right, had or like where are we going? Right. So we've always seen certain markets, but being kind of the melting pot of species. So yeah. where, where they once took were pre- predominantly Douglas fir, they're now taking hemlock or a combination of Southern yellow pine or spruce or what have you. 
Um, look, the you know, you look back 30, 40 years ago, the whole East Coast was wasn't even Spruce or SPF. It was Douglas Fir from the Pacific right. Northwest or Canada. All not even shipped by rail, all shipped by brake bulk or um, uh, barge uh, from <laughs> Vancouver all through through the uh, uh, canal and all the way back up the eastern seaboard. So all of the lumber sat on the ports along the coast. That has slowly or, um, uh, changed over time. Uh, now you still have pockets of those markets. New York City, New Jersey, uh, east parts of New England are still uh, a, a Douglas fir market, right. even though SPF is the closest product that's produced to, to that region, but they have a, you know, it's hard. It's a, it's what we call a, a you know, a, a, an old industry and people don't, it takes, it's a lot of old habits. So it takes them a long time to change. But I think in times like this, this year specifically, right. uh, in the end, latter part of 2020, when you have real, a real deficiency in supply, People right. are forced to make change. They have no other. They have no other option. I, I can't get what I used to buy. This is the only thing available. I got to go and buy the substitute product, and that's where I think Southern Yellow Pine right now is starting to see some of the this biggest push. Filling uh, that hole in the market, right? Right, right. It's like so, you know, MSR um, um, two and better product for truss manufacturing. Uh, what does MSR stand for? Uh, machine stress rated lumber. Okay. So they, they would be using that for high stress loads and uh, depending on uh, mainly for truss manufacturing. So a roof system manufacturing or a floor, a floor system. And in that application, you know, there's not as much SPF available, spruce, pine and fir. So they would use Southern yellow pine that could potentially be substituted into that. And you're, we are seeing places like Indiana and Chicago and Minneapolis, which were all big spruce markets, predominantly spruce markets, now taking Southern yellow pine. Even in, it's gotten so to the point where there's not enough um, MSR production in Canada, where you're seeing Southern yellow pine stuff from Georgia, shipping up to Quebec, shipping up to Ontario to uh, fulfill some needs into that marketplace as well. So it's definitely to, changed. Uh, sorry, go ahead. You had another point? No, I was just saying it's, it's seeing a substantial change in substitution of those products. They're you know, getting deeper and deeper into a market that they historically would not get into. Yeah, that makes complete sense to you know, see things move around that way. But it also raises questions, uh, two different points. One that I want to bring up is you kind of mentioned, again, your early days, the logistics and transportation but now you're talking about moving wood from one region to the next where it traditionally hadn't moved. Well, that requires labor and it requires trucks and trains. And, you know, we're in a kind of labor crunch, right? Where we have, uh, you know, inability in many manufacturing types of businesses to, you know, hire the right skilled labor to handle a lot of this stuff. What, what are you saying on the, on the lumber front? And is that causing for delays and, distribution or slowdowns, which also could be attributing to the rise in prices? The biggest challenge we have right now on the logistics side is not so much rail. There are rail problems, but they tend to be more seasonal. Okay. Um, trains, trains slow because the of uh, the winter time, you know, like getting product from BC across uh, Canada on the CN over to the Eastern seaboard uh, tends to take longer. It's just the speeds of the train slow down. Yeah. That will that changes as the the the, wet, the weather warms up, um, and we had a combination effect this year a little bit because the labor force was affected by COVID, so they had right. a lot more callouts, so there were issues in regard to that. 
I think this year right now, um, not so much on the rail side, or at least in, in the current state, because uh, I think rail is starting to catch up based off the data that we're seeing uh, right now on rail speeds, um, is the, tru- the, the flatbed trucking for availability for, for uh, lumber to ship right. is, is very, very tight right now. The, the worst that we've ever seen it. Um, we only had one other time that was similar to this, and that was uh, uh, in the first quarter uh, and going into the second quarter of 2018 when the, um, the federal government, government man- mandated e-logs. Right. That, that took about 20 to 30% of the capacity out of the marketplace for a period of time until they could figure out how to, you know, move those trucks more efficiently with the regulations that were now in effect. Right. And you need a specialized truck to move these massive logs, right? So it's not like you just, uh, you, you call up, uh, you know, local transportation company and say, yeah, I need to move some, some, uh, some logs here. You've no. got some other issues. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's, and it's, it's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of volume and um, truck or lumber in particular. Uh, as if you go look at you know the rates that it, it typically um, is transported around the country, yeah. it's it, it historically it's the lowest paid. Right, we we pay the majority of the truckers that we're paying lumber is like the cheapest commodity to go out there and haul, and we typically go out there and try and and. and uh, move it at the cheapest rates. Well, now that there's so much competition from all these other commodities and all right. these other goods that need to move to the market, it has moved our freight numbers, not just like up a little bit. We're seeing in many cases, 2X and 3X on, on some of these lanes that we're, we're operating in. So- I'll be honest, Kyle. I, I like that you're paying people more money to move lumber because I get on the road and I see you know a, a log truck going down. And all I could think is that thing's going to roll off and come through my windshield. So if these guys are paid top dollar, I'm sure hope that they, uh, you know, know what they're doing. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. It is a, yeah. it is a skilled labor force and it is a, um, it's a tough job. I mean, the yeah. trucking in general, I don't, you know, I don't think whatever goods that you're trucking around, I don't know that that would be a job that a lot of people really want to do. So it's important that the industry changes. They're going, to, it's going to have to cost more for uh, organizations, no matter what goods that you're shipping um, to get your product to the marketplace. And um, if not, we're just not gonna have enough trucks and uh, the, uh, the value proposition that you bring to your clients is gonna get continued to be more challenged because you're just not gonna be able to do what you historically has been able to do in the past. Um, it was a unique, we had a unique conversation in one of our meetings this week with our team and, and talking about that. It's not like uh, everybody's talking about labor and labor and labor, but you know, it's interesting. I was reading a Wall Street Journal article, I think from two or three weeks ago. Sure. There's roughly 4 million people sitting on the sidelines, just not coming back to the workforce. It's not right. like we're at full employment. Right. It's just that there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of money that's incentivizing them to stay home. Plus there's a lot of fear still uh, with this pandemic that you're dealing with and what have you. And until people feel in a more comfortable state, less anxious, you know, we're going to be in a, in a more challenging environment for a period of time. And, you know, lumber mills, all these other things, you know, we're going through massive inflation and also massive profitability. So in all likelihood, wages are going to have to move up in order to get people back to work as well. So it's not just one side of the, you know, a, 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 one single problem. It's it's a three-dimensional one. And, and we have to work together as, a, as a, an economy to get that done. That's interesting uh, perspective as well, because, you know, you're, you're talking about needing to get people back into the workforce. You're talking about, you know, the shortage in supply. 
And typically these things don't correspond with higher prices, right? Typically the cure, cure for higher prices is typically higher prices because eventually you're gonna bring on more supply to the market. And uh, right now we're not seeing that, but I, I guess it becomes a question, begs a question, are, is supply likely to continue to increase to try and meet the demand? And if so, the same conversation is kind of like a circular reference, right? Well, now we need more people and now we need more high quality, uh, you know, more high skilled labor. And so are we going to be able to fulfill all of this at the same time in attempt to drive prices lower? Or are we stuck in a upward spiral of price and uh, logistical issues? Well, um, boy, it's it. <laughs> so I was on a uh, webinar a few weeks ago with many representatives of the NAHB, the National Association of Home Builders, right? Okay. And their, their first thing specifically is we have, Mr. Biden, we need more lumber production. We need yeah. more lumber production. Our right. clients need more lumber. It's all a supply problem. Well, the easiest thing to do to get more supply or what have you, or to slow this price acceleration down is to decrease demand too. You could say like, Hey, we can't afford to build at these prices. Stop. This is too, too much. I can't pay this price anymore. So therefore the supply would catch up with the demand and we'd be back in equilibrium. Um, So it's not a one side fits all type category. So there's a a multitude of things, but I think there, like you said, the thing you said, what's the first thing that, 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 uh, you know, curbs high prices is high prices. That yeah. will come to, into effect and, and hold true to lumber at some point. Right. Uh, we're just not there yet because there's just too many unknowns and there's too many people that just are, you know, we're in a, in a frenzy for whatever reason to buy a home right now. Like yeah. it, it's well, unbelievable. Free money. Interest rates are low. The government's giving you, you know, what's it up to now? Uh, $3,500, $4,000 to uh, you know, do with what you want. Maybe those people bought Bitcoin and now they're trading it back in to buy a house. I mean, like- <laughs> Well, maybe not Bitcoin this week. I think it's down a little bit, but yeah. <laughs> right. but, yeah but, but, but you're right. Like there, it is all about affordability. And just because the price is going up doesn't mean the home's less affordable, right? right. Uh, because the interest rates are still at or below 3%. You know, what is this really affecting me over a 30 year period? Right now it's pretty minimal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, uh, I think that's 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 a fact. But the prices I was just talking with somebody before this uh, call is that the prices that we're seeing today, we're going to close at an all time high this week uh, yeah. on, on, on the lead uh, futures contract. Well, that takes about 30 to 60 days before that price actually gets into the marketplace. Right. So like so what is, you know, the dealers, the lumber dealers are going to readjust their prices here on May 1st. And when they do so. You know, what is the consumer reaction going to be? Because they say they have all this demand. They say have those. I would assume that we will see an adjustment in the amount of flow of product to the marketplace. You know, at some point, it could be as early as as, as May. But, you know, with a jump like we just had 20, 30 percent in a in a in a 30 to 45 day window, it's that's a big chunk, specifically at the prices that we're already at uh, in lumber. Um, you know, when we were, you know, sitting at, you know, as you said earlier in the conversation, a year ago, a 30% move, not so, not a big deal. Right. But now that we have already moved, you know, 260, 270% up, it's a, it's a very big deal. Big deal. Now that actually uh, 
speaks well to your your company and some of the work you do right on your website you offer risk management practices and clearly we're involved in the risk management business as we uh, you know collaborate with our teams and so I'd be uh, interested for you to have a, a chance here to kind of share how are you helping your customers forward price some of this risk um, maybe even strip a little bit of it out of the market or at least understand their costs as they put a bid on a job or a you know multi-family home project or whatever the uh, uh, yeah so is. so we have a, a program called guaranteed forward pricing uh, and we uh, provide our clients an opportunity to go and bid and get projects at a fixed price and then supply them the material at that fixed price for periods of time anywhere from a year to two years out. So for example, today we are shipping product that we would have quoted a year ago mm-hmm. to job sites in Atlanta or Dallas or uh, Jacksonville or up here in the, in the New York match, you know, tri uh, um, state area, um, Pennsylvania, Virginia, that we would have quoted last year at prices that would have been 300 times lower, right? So we have lumber today that we're shipping customers um, over this period of time at a price that they were able to go and bid the job, get the customer to commit to last the job. Year. And then and last year, and now we're deli- just, it's they're scheduled and they're delivering the product to the job site for that customer. And we offset our risk based off of our, co- it's a correlation trade. Uh, we have a proprietary data of over 40 years of all lumber items, how they correlate to uh, the, uh, the two by four, two and better Western Canadian derivative that's traded on the CME. And uh, so we offset that risk uh, uh, with uh, um, uh, buying uh, the board against that uh, commitment uh, at the time that we go and sell that. And then we offset that, um, um, we close out that trade when we deliver the product. And then that would be the margin that that we would make uh, uh, over and above the, um, the, the risk that we took or the basis that we, made or didn't make in, in, in the, uh, or produce in that, in that transaction. So it's a very, um, very unique thing. I think there's, we have competitors in the marketplace that do it. I don't know that they have, uh, the data and the, uh, and, and are looking at it in the same way that we are because, um, you know, two by four, two and better Western Canadian spruce is only one item that's produced at a sawmill. They yeah. produce hundreds of other products. And right. so w- what we do is because of all of this information and looking at this stuff over time relative to itself, relative to other products in its category, relative to the seasonals, relative to the hedge or to the, to the derivative, we are able to go out there and provide a price for our customer every single day for some delivery of that item at some point in the future and actually deliver it to them at that time. Um, some people try to do it, but they're doing it. It's more of a, hey, the price of two by four, two and better is this, the price of this other product is that, whatever the spread is between that, they go and do that. That they At that time, they many times take the trade. The, what they don't recognize is that just because a uh, uh, two by four, two and better Western Spruce goes up or down by one point or two points, either direction, that that other item is not directly correlated and would not right. necessarily move in the same manner, the same time and what have you. And it gets a lot of people in trouble, um, but you know, to each his own, that's their the, the business model. We, we feel ours is a little bit more unique and uh, a very uh, disciplined model. Um, and we have clients that are 
really enjoying, um, you know, going out there and selling product every single day and not having to worry about uh, the product going up or down. They know that they got a job. They yeah. got a commitment by their customer. They That's have a commitment great. by their supplier. They put a margin on top of it and they just go out there and deliver the wood. And then they go out there and try to get more and more of that. It just becomes more of an annuity type uh, trade as opposed to how the majority of the industry works typically is they go and sell the product and then yeah. they go, they take it back to their purchasing team and say, Hey, I sold this. How do I go buy it now? And, right. figure, and it fig- figure it out. And it's just more disciplined and, uh, um, what we like to say a little bit more scientific approach to going out there and procuring product. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, really at the end of the day, you're utilizing financial derivatives, or in this case, commodity derivatives, what they were built and intended for, which is to maximize the margin of your business and mitigate risk. So I would say use this platform here to uh, give a shout to the CME and ask them to uh, come up with uh, more contracts that would fit all the different, uh, uh, you know, species, you know? Yeah. The the challenge is, is I think getting more and more, more people to use it. I think the the funny thing is in the lumber business, uh, the the whole industry looks at it, but the amount of people that actually trade it is so few. And, uh, and, and I really, to be honest, I would want to get more people, whether they do it with Sherwood lumber, they do it with their local, their broker, they do it. Uh, they open up an account on interactive brokers. I don't really care. Let's go out there and increase the open interest in any way possible because it's better for all of us. If if you're going out there and using this tool, that's there, it's there for everybody to use to go out there and offset your risk and help you one, um, provide an insurance policy for catastrophic loss or, add more margin to your business. I mean, use it. It's there. Um, and, you know, we'll help you. We'll, uh, uh, you know, consult with you, whether, again, whether you use us or not, like it doesn't really matter, but the, I think it's really, really good if the industry, more people in the industry use it. I think a lot of, agree more. A, a lot of people really struggle with the correlation of how it works to all those other items. And, um, and they also, unfortunately, our industry is based on broad speculation, right. you know, a lot of cowboys in the lumber business and they don't, <laughs> they don't necessarily, uh, they, they don't, you're re- supposed to call them lumberjacks. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> so, but they, uh, they, they, you, know, you have to understand it's a hedge and it's not, yeah. you're not trying to win on both sides of the transaction. What you're trying to do is correlate it. So it provides you a, a cushion. And, uh, I don't think, and, the, and a lot of people don't necessarily look at that from that yeah. scenario. So, you know, I mean- probably find yourself looking for new smaller distribution companies that could roll up and access some of these tools and resources that you have. I mean, I got to imagine has acquisition been a big part of the growth of your business? So it was early in early days uh, that I came on to Sherwood uh, in the, at the financial downturn in 2008 through 2012. That's exactly how Sherwood grow grew through acquisition. Uh, we, we put on a big push and part, part of my uh, um, responsibility in trying to go out there and, and re- take the, all of, you know, with an acquisition, you get a lot of good and you get, a, but you get a lot of bad too. You get a lot right. of all, everything. Yeah. And the key is, is how can you go the out baggage. there and take the, how can you go and take the best parts of that? And the biggest thing for us was one, getting our culture aligned, getting our people to understand what our vision was as an organization, what's our mission and how are we going to live by that, by our core values. And we really uh, put a lot of time and effort into that uh, specifically in 2016 through 2018. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's never done. You're always doing that. Like, but 
once you find the right mix of individuals, you have the early adopters and then you have the people, the believers, and then you have, then everybody's like, well, I guess if everybody's doing it, I'm going to do it too. And all of a sudden you get that together and they add togetherness and recognize that the team is much, much greater than the individual. Uh, it, it creates uh, an amazing environment and the performance levels just go up in a way that you just never would have thought. And that's one thing that we talked about. I specifically talked about with my owner. I said, you're not, you're going to see, our business grow in multiples in every metric that we talk about, it's going to perform in multiples of what you thought was the best in the past. And he's like, right. looked at us and like said, what, what are you talking about? And I'm like, why? I said, because you have people that are bought in and now you're going to see some of the, the better things that you would never have thought because you always had something pulling against that. When you have right. that, that thing pulling against you, it's not necessarily going to provide uh, a, a true result. So, you know, Part of it is the the lumber uh, um, uh, appreciation and acceleration that we dealt with over the last year and a half, but um, but a lot of it is our team really recognizing that this is a stressful environment. We're all in this together, and we're going to go figure it out together. And we're having a lot of fun doing that right now. It's 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 really it's really cool to see. It sounds like it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess a couple last things is uh, you know in general uh, where. Where are you guys located? Um, what areas do you service the most? I mean, you've got obviously offices in New York and um, Pennsylvania and all over, but where's your concentration of your business? And um, and then I guess the next after that'll be, you know, where do you see lumber going in terms of price uh, direction over the next, uh, the next few, uh, three, six, 12 months? Okay, so, uh, well, so the first part of that, uh, well, we're based in, our, our headquarters are in Melville, New York. Uh, we have offices in Melville, Tampa, Florida, and uh, uh, Palmer, Massachusetts, and Lake Oswego, Oregon. Uh, we sold into all 40, 48 uh, states inside of North America. We did not sell into uh, Alaska or uh, Hawaii last year, uh, but we sold uh, over 2,000 customers across the country to over 6,000 uh, ship to destinations. Right. Uh, so it's everywhere. Um, our biggest state is still New York. Uh, we still have the bulk of the volume. That's where the company was founded. That's the uh, uh, where the company um, uh, really entrenched itself in the Metro New York market. But I think Texas uh, is sitting at number two or number three as, as far as our total volume. Um, and then, you know, down that I-95 Eastern seaboard, I would say is probably, you know, where the population really is centered around the United States in this, those city, those metro markets is where, where, where we sell a lot into. Um, as far as the lumber market, where do I see it going? Um, I, I really think that um, a couple of things. We, we, uh, um, we have two specific um, data points that we've been watching since yeah. late July last year, um, we believe this lumber uh, and, and, and based on looking at those two data points, it only um, what happened inside of those things only happened seven times before that in the last 35 years. Wow. And in those seven times, uh, it created a new cycle. And, and uh, that new cycle lasted anywhere from nine to 42 months. So an average of like 24, 20, 25 months right. on those seven times. So it, this happened in July of last year. We're in month uh, approaching month number 10. So right. of a Got cycle, a that, 
of, of a cycle that we believe could be could last as long as longer than 24 months. But I think it's probably an 18 to 24 month cycle. So we still have a long ways to go. Um, well, that would match up too with uh, the Fed's interest rate discussion, right? 2022, 23, they start potentially raising rates. I mean, yeah. you know, that could also all co- coincide with each other. So I, I believe that, you know, price decline is really not going to happen in any major capacity uh, until demand slows. Like, right. so demand has to slow down for some reason. And I think, you know, there's a lot of different things that can slow down demand. I think what a lot of people are going to be looking at specifically, we touched on a little bit early in the conversation is affordability. Yeah. Uh, um, that's going to be a big key. And that comes with rising interest rates, it comes with uh, inflation of other products, uh, but, infla- but inflation of lumber as well, and uh, lack of uh, um, um, labor growth or, or salary growth, right? Like people, right. like we might be inflating uh, all these products, the CPI might continue to go up, but we might see compensation stay flat. And that's going to, you know, really affect affordability over, over the near term and long term. So um, I just don't think additional supply can come to the market so fast. Um, we're in a glo- global supply challenge um, because you have China that's just ramping up. Um, Europe is very, very steady. The, we didn't talk about it earlier, but the European wood basket is very instrumental now to the U.S. markets. Sure. A lot of people don't realize that they're buying lumber from Austria and Scandinavia and, and Germany and France, but that does come here. Sherwood mm-hmm. lumber does import, uh, uh, you know, a significant quantity of it uh, every month. And, um, that is a uh, very uh, instrumental that will start to increase here in the United States. And that might help. Uh, but I still believe it's only if demand kind of slows down a little bit. What about China? I mean, everybody wants to know when you talk commodities about China, I mean, is there any market for you, either your wood, your services or wood from China to the U S I mean, how, do you guys even think about China in relation? So, to- so we do, we do import some wood from China. There is a large tariff on, on uh, forest products from China. Okay. Um, what we do primarily buy is uh, veneer grade plywood, birches and uh, um, um, oaks and what have you used for cabinet uh, grade manufacturing or furniture grade manufacturing. We don't do, it's not a big part of our business. It's less than 5% of our overall business, but we do a little bit of it. Um, China I think the, in the way that they uh, um, affect the wood products market most is them as a, a consumer of it. Like, so okay. whether or not Canada uh, or the US, the US South exports a tremendous amount of logs to China. So does the Pacific Northwest. Uh, um, and China, as we, at least what I'm reading about, is very similar to the US. They continue to spend a lot of money on infrastructure build. And the U.S. is going to be doing the same. So I would think that the demand for forest products, metals, and what have you continues to rise in that market. It's, uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. There's, uh, I haven't seen it yet, but we have a division of our company, RCM China, that does trade the Chinese commodities markets. And I don't know if there's a lumber contract. I know there's many other ones, uh, ones you would never even think of. But uh, I guess we'll have to watch to see, uh, see what they do on that front. Yeah. I mean, I do... Um, I do help uh, um, participate in a small advisory committee with the CME in regards to the lumber contract. Okay. Uh, one of the one of the big things that they've talked about. You talked about the other products that they want to do. The biggest thing right now is the lumber contract is pr- predominantly well. It, it's written for uh, Western produced product. What they're trying to do is build an amendment for Eastern Canadian product to be deliverable into the contract. So that's the next move. Um, a, 
And then um, maybe the minis, mini lumber, would that help uh, smaller distribution it, companies? It, it could, it could, but um, you know, we'll have to see. I, I think the biggest thing is getting uh, the Canadians uh, an option, specifically the Eastern Canadians, an option to deliver product to the board. That would be yeah. substantial and getting uh, some of the larger manufacturers to use it more regularly. Interesting. Um, yep. Well, Kyle, this has been super interesting today. I really, really appreciate your time. Maybe, uh, uh, before I let you go, I got a couple uh, quick, fast, fast questions uh, to finish out and kind of wrap up. Um, I guess, what, what is your favorite type of wood? If you had to, you know, if you're building, building a house and uh, you were going to put, uh, you know, uh, you're going to make a log cabin, what's it made out of? Oh, I, got, I mean, I got to say Douglas fir. That's what Sherwood, that's the, one of the predominant species that Sherwood lumber uh, trades. So I'm going to say Douglas fir. Douglas fir. Okay, great. I'll, I'll tell my builder, uh, <laughs> make sure he's using that. Okay, that's good. Um, so you've been out in New York. How long would you say you've been out in New York? So this is, this will be my fourth summer in New York. So I guess awesome. yeah, my fourth summer of getting to play golf on Long Island, which is for those of you who have never visited Long Island, there's just yeah. a lot of old golf courses here, like old Tillinghast, uh, um, a lot of, you know, great designers that, that built some ma major uh, courses here and some had some amazing tournaments back in the day. Yeah. So, you know, the old, the adage, if you play for a $2, $3 Nassau, yeah. that's because of Nassau Country Club, which is based here on Long Island. So uh, supposedly uh, that's where Bobby Jones purchased Calamity Jane. So another <laughs> little thing. So for the, for you golf historians out there, but yeah, uh, you're still uh, in early days out there. So you're eating up all the culture. That's good. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, I got to ask, what's your uh, best score at Beth Page Black? I kept it under 80. I shot a 78. Wow. Wow. Yep. See, I'm yep. glad I asked before I, I tried to play a Nassau, $5 Nassau with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's been, uh, it's fun. It's fun to play there, but I can tell you my other scores were not even close to that. So <laughs> I was just in the zone that day. <laughs> That's yeah. It takes that. Yeah, I yep. shot, um, see, I'm 40, be 43 this year. I shot my best round last summer in Nashville with a, with one of our uh, partners down there. I was flat 80. So that was, that's best, awesome. That's good cool. golf. So, so we'll have to, uh, to come out. There's been, I'll come out to see you and we'll go to uh, Muirfield and you can come here and we'll play Beth page. That's sold. That's <laughs> sign me up, sign me up. And uh, last question, if you uh, had, what's your favorite extreme sport? If you had to either uh, be involved in one, you've done something in the past uh, or you want another lifetime. I've never done uh, one, but I would like to do like a, um, a tough mutter or a Spartan nice. race, some, one of like something like that. I have done a, a, f a couple half marathons and I ran one marathon, the Pittsburgh marathon. It was impressive. It, it's, it's, uh, uh, my claim to fame is I ran my best half marathon and my worst half marathon in the same race. So <laughs> that's a tough race. I mean, it's yeah. true, true, uh, you know, gut check there. Yep. You should, you'd be surprised at the answers I get. I've had, uh, I've had rugby, um, you know, skydiving, of course, is an easy one. So um, pretty interesting responses from different people. But uh, cool. Um, no, appreciate the time. Last thing is how, uh, how do people get a hold of you if uh, they want to get in touch with Sherwood or yourself, uh, discuss opportunities, you yep. know, lining up jobs, anything along those lines? So the best way to get in touch with me is uh, to call Sherwood Lumber, 800-645-6226, or uh, send me an email, klittle at sherwoodlumber.com. Perfect. All right, Kyle. Well, we had a great time here today. Uh, hopefully we'll do it again, kind of check in on lumber prices from time to time. And obviously do, like you said, let's get, the, let's get that golf game planned. Yeah, out. it's cool. Uh, yeah. And uh, 
you know, the Browns might be the, the team to be in the AFC <laughs> North this year. You never know. I, I, they're, definitely they're not tough. the Bears. Not with Andy Dalton at the helm. No. no. <laughs> if they got if, if they got Russell, if they did made the play for Russell Wilson, maybe I would have said that they would have done something, right. but no. <laughs> that would have been that would have just been too good to be true, I think. Yeah. All right, sir. Well, thank you again. Uh, thank you. appreciate your time. And we'll uh, get this all wrapped up and get it sent to you. This is the Hedge Edge. Thank you. Thank you. See you. listening to the hedged edge links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel follow us on twitter at ag underscore rcm like our facebook page under rcm ag services and visit our website read our blog and subscribe to our newsletter at rcmagservices.com if you like our show introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe and be sure to leave comments we'd love to hear them 